Hey everybody, welcome to FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Coles. Good evening. Good evening. Literally evening. We're doing one of our late night runs tonight, post-screening, getting this in before bedtime. My guy is wearing his Lakers sweatshirt right now, which makes me very happy. Yeah, (laughs) we're both getting very excited for basketball season. Nothing to do with this podcast or movie reviews, but we care. So there's that. Uh, Excited to see how our team does this year with the oldest squad in NBA history, (laughs) most likely. There's a lot of talent, but there's a lot of years, a lot of mileage. We'll see what happens. Well, here on FF Plus, folks, our format is pretty straightforward. We start by talking about what we liked about each movie because we are fans of positivity. Then we'll transition. We'll be sure and mention anything that we didn't like, and we will eventually give you a recommendation about whether we think a movie is worth your time and money. That's it. Simple, short, and spoiler-free. We're going to start with the movie that we just got out of maybe about an hour ago, actually, and that is Venom Let There Be Carnage, starring Tom Hardy, Michelle Williams, Naomi Harris, Reed Scott, Stephen Graham, and Woody Harrelson. It is directed by Andy Serkis, and it is written by Kelly Marcel, who, by the way, in case anyone doesn't know, Kelly Marcel was the writer of Fifty Shades of Grey and Saving Mr. Banks, as well as the first Venom and Cruella. So, really interesting group of films there. Uh, you know, directed by Gollum. The cinematographer of this movie is uh, Robert Richardson, who was is famous for doing a bunch of Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese pictures. And the score is from Malco Beltrami. This thing has so much talent in it, and then in, in, in it's a movie. Uh, what is it about? <laughs> Over a year after the events of the first Venom, investigative journalist Eddie Brock struggles to adjust to life as the host of an alien symbiote named Venom which grants him superhuman abilities in order to be a lethal vigilante. Brock attempts to reignite his career by interviewing serial killer Cletus Cassidy, who becomes the host of the symbiote Carnage and escapes prison after a failed execution. All right. So, Kales, I I believe that we've established via a couple of Facebook comments that perhaps you liked this more than I did, and since we do like to lead with positivity, I want to throw this to you first and get your thoughts on what you enjoyed about this movie. So, first thing, there's a disclaimer that comes with my review. I really disliked the first Venom. I, I, I wasn't a major fan. I could see why it has a little bit of a following and why people are excited for this. So I kind of tempered my expectations, which kind of helped me in enjoying this film. Is it the greatest thing ever made? No. Is it something that I'm going to remember five years down the line? No. But it's a good time. It is very funny. I really like the interactions between Brock and Venom. Those were some of the best scenes that were in the first film. And in this film, I still like their buddy tandem. You know, they're throwing wisecracks at each other. They're fighting against one another. You have mostly Venom, who is the star of this film. And who is the voice actor of Venom? I remember the first one was Tony Todd. Is that no, still him? It's Tom Hardy. It, it oh. was Tom Hardy in both movies. Oh. And, it, and he, oh. he, yeah, it's pretty impressive. This movie, I think he sounds a little more like Bane than he did in the first one, but it's Tom Hardy. Okay, okay, cool, cool. I, I think I might have looked on the wrong website when it came to the source on that. But yes, Tom Hardy, he does a great voice. It does sound a little bit like Bane, but 
I like the dialogue that they give him. And I like that Venom is able to separate from Brock and he, he's able to have some scenes on his own. We also get Brock doing some investigative work. I remember in the first film that it's mostly about Brock getting used to the symbiote being in his body. And in this film, we get to see Brock actually doing something outside of that. He's investigating a serial killer named Cletus. And that's where we get Rudy, Woody Harrelson. Harrelson always does a great job with these roles where he gets to be wacky. He gets to ham it up a little bit. He gets to really have fun. And he's had a lot. He's having a lot of fun with this role as Carnage. And also to the cinematography, Robert Richardson, beautiful work done on this film. It looks excellent. The visuals look so much better than the first film. So much better. I, I like the way that Venom looks. I like the way that Carnage looks when he comes on screen. I love the lighting, especially in the nighttime scenes, the explosions, you know, just the way that the visual design comes out. It's a good job. It's much better than the first film. And the action. The action is not, ex I would say, hard-hitting. It's not something that's memorable. It's not something that you usually get from a well-established comic book film, but it gets the job done. I mean, it's wild. It's full of just... All of these symbiosis destroying things, going around trying to eat people, and then you get fights and everything, and it's a it's a decent time. I I keep using the word decent and solid and okay because for most people, this film, if you've seen the first one and you didn't like the first one, I don't see how you're really going to come across and put your arms around this one. But for me, I came in with low expectations. I try to keep myself calm and let myself know that. No, this film is not going to be winning any Oscars. No, this film is not meant to be excellent, but it does a solid job of building what was on the first film. And I actually like Carnage more as a villain than what we got in the first film as well. So I consider it pretty solid. Okay. I mean, I, I you're not alone. I, I, you know, took a quick glance at Letterboxd to see what some of our peers had said or what the ratings look like, because Embargo isn't up at the time of this recording yet. So we haven't had official review reviews drop, but I get the sense that a lot of people are having a similar reaction to you and saying they liked the, the changes from the first film. And the first film kind of waffled the line between trying to be a little more serious but also leaning into its humorous kind of nature i revisited the first film recently and i actually liked it more than i didn't barely i didn't mind it and i it's got plenty of problems it's not a favorite movie by any means it's not something i plan to rewatch, but i wanted to rewatch it before the sequel so this movie since we're on the positives i will say this it is consistent in tone and it is committed in tone and i will give it that because it knows what it wants to do and it does it from the very first frame of the movie to the end of the post credit scene like it is all the way to this specific campy style it feels like it came out of the 90s to be honest with better cgi like i agree with you the cgi looks good for the characters and some of the action, I didn't enjoy the choreography in the, well, that's a negative. I'm going to be nice. I enjoyed some of the, the CGI of the characters, Carnage and a Venom. You're right. They do look absolutely incredible. Just the detail in like the different tendons and when he's, when they're pulled apart and especially Carnage, because Carnage is like known for having extra appendages, right? Or tentacles or whatever. He, he has more arms and stuff 
coming off of him than Venom typically does. So that was good. Uh, I agree with you that the best thing about this whole series is Tom Hardy. Like he is awesome at playing this role the way that they want him to play it. He is conflicted. He's in his head. He's kind of wigging out because he's got this symbiote as part of him. And you really feel that it is truly a buddy rom-com between Tom Hardy and himself, <laughs> Venom, uh, in a lot of ways. And if you buy into this and if you enjoy the humor and the writing, I could see people really, really liking that and being on board with it. There's a couple of scenes that did elicit some genuine laughs versus eye roll laughs. A lot of eye roll laughs for me, but there was a moment toward the end in the convenience store. If you remember Mrs. Chen from the first film, she's back. And there's a specific moment with her that was like probably my favorite scene in the entire movie. Um, that one had me legit laughing. And then there's plenty of other stuff in this movie that doesn't. I will say this. I did not like it overall at all. I was very, very annoyed. And here is why, Coles. I'm frustrated because I believe that the way that they have taken this franchise now and gone full camp, it says to me, Sony doesn't think they can compete with Marvel. They don't think that they can make a Marvel movie that will be as good as Marvel. And so they were like, you know what? We're going to make something so stupid instead that you literally can't compare us. And now what? And my issue with that is not that, like I said, I can applaud the consistency and the tone. It is insane to me, the number of talented people that are a part of this. They are clearly having fun. I hate Harrelson's performance. I, I mean, I guess his performance, I don't hate his performance. I hate his character. Like I just, there's nothing interesting about it to me. The plot is a nothing burger. It's ridiculous. You have Naomi Harris and she's like buried in a weird makeup and her character's just absolutely terrible. And the things that they try to do to bring in some ties to kind of other comic book characters and universes in this movie angered me because this movie is so campy and I don't want those other things touched. I don't want them to be dealt with in anything other than a more kind of serious, like real, you know, actual kind of comic book style movie that's not just, to me, purely stupid. And I felt like this movie was going for the lowest common denominator with its humor. It is intentionally dumb. So do not get me wrong. It is not a movie that is trying to be good and failing. It is a movie that is leaning 100% into everything and every choice in the movie that you would be like, oh my gosh, are they really going to do this? Like they're doing it on purpose. And if you're the kind of person that can get behind that and enjoy that kind of stuff, I think you're going to have a lot of fun at the movies with this. But that person is not me. I still wonder why is Michelle Williams still in these films? Like, what does she do? Uh, money, it, money, money, I mean, money, money. <laughs> yeah, I guess, Michelle, go ahead and cash those big, heavy checks. But in this film, once again, she's just reduced to being somewhat of a person that is need a saving. Somebody who really doesn't have anything to do but just to follow around Brock and still be in his life for some reason, even though they're broken up and she should have moved on. Still, she somehow gets roped back into his life. And I, I just don't, I, I guess it's for the star power. I guess Michelle Williams is on the poster. Hey, some people, some females would might like tell their boyfriend, hey, let's go see this film. I don't see why her character is still in this. And if they make another one, 
maybe they could do something to write off her character. And that's not saying anything bad towards Michelle Williams. Is that the way that they're using her character is not is something that you don't miss if they would have taken her out of the film. Also, along with the humor, there are some moments where me and my girlfriend did laugh out loud, but there are other times where it does get corny. Uh, there's a scene where Carnage is literally speaking to Venom, and he says, let there be Carnage, and I'm like, okay, kind of a little bit of an eye roll. There's a scene where Venom goes into this party, and he has glow sticks all over him, and he <laughs> starts talking about Eddie Brock and like how he's free and he's happy and kind of awkward. It, also, I didn't really buy into the Harrelson and Naomi Harris love story that they tried to pull. Like they tried not to, even close. Not <laughs> they even tried close. to make this whole thing about these long lost lovers who have been trapped in these institutions and they have these powers and now they can get to come together and have this red wedding, which I thought was almost like a little head nod to Game of Thrones. Who knows? But I mean the film is only 90 minutes, so there's only so much you can do in that a span of time. And a love story kind of distracts away from the whole battle between Carnage and Venom. Yeah, then, well, that's a like that's the thing, man. Like, it's it is only ninety minutes, and you literally create Carnage in this movie, and then you have a final fight with Carnage in this movie, and there's only fifteen to seventeen minutes. I clocked it to check. I looked at my watch when it started. It's not until like the final fifteen minutes of this movie that you even get Venom versus Carnage. So you out of ninety minutes, you barely see them together, and like it just. And I didn't love the fight scene between them. You know, I mean, it was fine. It was better than the first movie because the first movie was basically Venom versus Venom. So it's at least at least <laughs> you had a different color, you know, and a little bit one's different sized. So it was a little more interesting. But yeah, like, where's the like, I don't know. I don't know. It just didn't didn't mesh for me. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, it's, it's something like. This is supposed to be the main draw of your film, like Venom versus Carnage. This is what allowed the comic book people out there have been waiting for. They have been dying to see this on film. And for it to only just have like a brief moment to stand in the sunlight, it's kind of weird. And it makes me wonder about what direction they were trying to do with this film. I mean, there are so many scenes you can cut out of this. You can cut out Michelle Williams. You can cut out this love story. You can cut out a lot of the little corny attempts at slapstick humor and be able to build upon this battle between these two these two symbiotes but it feels like a lost opportunity and it that's what makes it unmemorable to me i mean these films are not really built to be memorable there it's obvious that sony is really is really just going for a little comedy road with these films they're not really trying to make anything serious they're not trying to go dark with it. They just really want a comedy that kids and families can go see together and they can enjoy it for what it is. And I'm fine with that. But like I said before, I mean, these this film is not going to be something I'm going to remember for a, in a long time. I probably might not even remember it next month. But it's solid. I consider it a big improvement over the original. I know we're at odds on that. It, I'm shocked. I thought I was going to come in hating this and joining Wright Rivio on Riding on His Grave. But there is a lot to take away from this film that could be considered a positive and something that will keep people entertained. And hey, go watch this in a premium format. IMAX, Dolby Cinema, is Robert Richardson's cinematography is built for it. Well, there you go. So there's Kalesa's recommendation. He says it's worth spending your money on. I, you know, I guess I have to say, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> listen, if you like what you're hearing from us, and this is the thing you want out of Venom is you want goofy and silly 
and not at all. Like I didn't ever feel like Woody Harrelson and Carnage. Well, Carnage I did. I didn't feel like Cletus Cassidy was ever menacing. He's so over the top exaggerated that it's not scary to me at all. Carnage itself, Carnage the CGI is awesome looking. Like I, I wanted more of that, you know, but like if you are a fan of these two and you have been reading the comics and you understand what these characters are and you just want to see them on the big screen, nothing I'm saying is going to dissuade you anyway. So yes, go see it on the biggest screen. It sounds cool. Like it looks fun and neat at times. So it's worth doing that. So I would say yes, if you did, but just understand that you may come out. If you're not the kind of person that wants a nonstop buddy comedy in your superhero movie, you're probably going to be a little disappointed. And also another thing with the negative, uh, Eminem, he's, he's a living legend. You know, he's one of the greatest artists we've ever seen, but the theme songs that he's, the songs that he's making for both of these films, they haven't been good. And once the end credits comes around, before we get to the post credit scene, you're treated to another Eminem song for this film. And it doesn't sound good at all. I mean, it, it feels like a guy who's resting on his laurels and, who's kind of sitting on a stack of money and just doing whatever feels good to him. And I kind of wish that we could get back to the days where people made songs that actually talked about the film, that actually knew the story of the film and actually tied in with the film. Well, but we're, but we just now get soundtracks that have artists come on there, just talk about random things that have nothing to do with the film. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Yeah, totally fair there. I I didn't even know it was Eminem to be honest with you. That didn't even register. I mean, I didn't, notice it was him so uh this will be out in theaters october the first so if you are so inclined go see it it'll be more fun in a theater than it would ever be at home i will give it that if you're gonna watch it pay to go see it because otherwise you're really wasting your time in my opinion Mm -hmm. like i would i have no desire to rewatch it at home but at least it was you know some communal aspect of the laughter (laughs) hits better in a theater also, like I said, post credit scene, uh, it's mid-credits, actually, like the first film was. Must. Absolute must. I will say it absolutely made me furious, and I can't talk about it, of course, but it made me actively angry. And whenever you do see this movie when it comes out, feel free to come find me on social media, and let's talk about why it made me so mad. Because <laughs> I can't say anything more than that. Because I care about the people. All right, moving on from Venom. What we need now is we need some Jesus in our life, Kales, after watching that, <laughs> after watching Serial Killer and an alien go at it. Um, so this film is called The Jesus Music. This is a documentary, and it features a slew of Christian musical artists over the decades. Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack of DC Talk, Kirk Franklin, Lauren Daigle, Glenn Kaiser, Greg Laurie, John Thompson, for King and Country, Bill Reeves, Eddie DeGarmo, Chris Tomlin, Michael Tate, also of DC Talk and the Newsboys, Kevin Max of DC Talk, Lecrae, Mandisa, Bill Gaither, and many, many more. It is directed by Andrew Irwin and John Irwin. Uh, these guys made, I can only imagine, one of the more critically acclaimed faith-based films of the last several years, one that is still on my watch list. What is the documentary about? With stirring songs of faith, love, and hope, Jesus music, and I put that in kind of quotes, rose from America's 1960s counterculture movement to become a worldwide phenomenon. 
This fascinating documentary reveals the music's uplifting and untold story. From its humble beginnings at the Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, through its transformation into the multi-billion dollar industry of Christian contemporary music that we know today. It is a definitive love letter to CCM fans that features intimate interviews with the biggest stars of the genre. It has stories of trials and triumphs. The universal power of music from these artists shines through from their message of passion, sacrifice, and redemption to inspire millions of devoted listeners. I would love to hear what you thought about this first because I have a lot to say in this first section and I kind of want to be able to have your perspective on this before I start. This documentary, outside of exploring Christianity and Christian Christian contemporary music, which is now a billion dollar industry, it really treats us to the transformative power of music, how music can bring us together, how music can help us explore our emotions, how music can help us feel closer to people and also to whatever God people believe in. Um, I will go on record and admit that I'm not exactly a Christian. Um, I haven't really been into religion since I was in high school, but I do believe in one thing, that treating everybody nice and being tolerant of other people and their beliefs, no matter their skin color, orientation, or their thoughts is what I follow. So if that brings you close to Christianity, then I guess I'll take that. But outside of that, these documentaries, you know, most of the time, my problem with Christian documentaries is that there's always a vague uh, sense that the documentarians or the people that they're interviewing are trying to get you to become a Christian. Like they're trying to tell you, hey, you know, if you believe in this and if you don't believe what we believe in, then you know what? Hey, you're going to hell. I didn't get any kind of that in this documentary. This documentary is really about focusing on the evolution of the music, you know, that was birthed out of the countercultural movement of the late 60s. And it started as Jesus music. And then now we have Christian contemporary music, which takes in many forms, not just, you know, people playing guitar, but there's also rappers, there's singers, you know, there's producers, there's a lot of people. And we get interviews with people like Kurt Franklin, Amy Smith, Toby Mack. I grew up with these people. I grew up with my mom and dad bumping Kurt Franklin in their car. And Toby Mack, I mean, in, in my church in Georgia, Toby Mack was like a god to people down there. Like every time I would go on a Wednesday night for a Wednesday service, there was one of the kids playing Toby Mack <laughs> right in the Bible study room. So, yes, I, I was. it was nice hearing some of these songs that I used to sing when I was in church. And also hearing that some of these songs that they've been sung and they've been heard over thousands of times around the world. And you get these big stadium concerts where you have you have one singer in a band up there playing and just seeing all these people who are able to feel what their neighbor is feeling. And you have that expanded by thousands of people in an arena. It's a very powerful experience and it's kind of chilling in a sense. And I also like that it deals with music. I mean, music is one is a thing that everybody can agree on is something that makes us feel good. I mean, how will we live without being able to hear our favorite songs every day or whenever we choose to? And we see that the people who are being interviewed, these artists, they talk about how the music its not just about making money. It's not just about being famous. It's about getting closer to people. It's about getting closer to God and being able to what they say fulfill a good Christian life. And I can agree with that, even though I'm not of the same religious belief. It's something that I can understand. And I and hey, if you like it, I love it. And I saw in your review on your letterbox review, I hope I'm not spoiling it for you, but you consider this your summer of soul. And I said in my review that 
any Christian person that watches this film, this is going to be an important film for them. I mean, if you go around and you live for going to church on Sundays and studying the Bible and listening to music and being able to share in that experience and being able to see the people who are behind that, it's very inspirational and it's a celebration of the Christian faith, the good kind of Christian faith, you know, not Christian faith that is cooperative to be used for bad. It's cooperative for people to be able to come together because they talk about in certain scenes of the documentary about how these Christian artists that they were being like criticizing the media for having addiction problems or Amy's in the case of Amy Smith, she got, she got divorced from her first husband and she was like railroaded in the media. And that one of the artists talked about how in the pop and rock and roll media, you're kind of more being able to be forgiven more easily for any transgressions you have. But in the Christian contemporary music sector, if an artist makes a mistake, then they are immediately, in a sense, like given the scarlet letter. They have a they have a scar that they carry around with them. And it's hard to shake off. And this documentary kind of asks us for a Christian artist to kind of give them a little bit of a break. Like we understand that people make mistakes every day. People are committing sins every day. But doesn't the book talk about that you can be forgiven? <laughs> that you can be able to make good on your mistakes and not repeat them again. It, I was surprised by this. I came into this not expecting to really even give it a thought. But I think it's a very solid documentary, if it's by the numbers, which I'll get into in my negatives. But I would like to hear what you have to say, because I know you gave this a big glowing review, and I know you you are a devout Christian, so I know that this is right in your real house. Yeah, I was really excited to hear what you thought about this, because um, you know, it resonated with me deeply. This is one of the films that I didn't really know about. It came through our email as a press request. And I was like, huh, a movie about Christian contemporary music and the history of it. Well, I grew up on this. And while I'm not exactly as devout as maybe you might make me sound, I have grown up a Christian. I am a believer. Um, I, I do follow Christ, you know, to an extent as much as I possibly can. Um, and consider myself a believer. And this is a huge part of my childhood. So when I was in my high school years and my junior high years, I was addicted to this music of that era. You know, I was attending these concerts, as you see in this film. I was attending these expos. Um, I was, you know, bumping this music loud out of my car, whether it was DC Talk or even Michael W. Smith and all of these other artists. And so for me, I really connected to these people. And I do think, you know, it is my summer of soul in a sense, because it is not just about the artists. It is about the history and the evolution of the musical genre. And that's what I really appreciated about this the most, Coles. I loved seeing all of these artists and I loved getting to have the stories from them about how they got their start in Christian music and what the history before them meant to them, how it influenced them, how they wanted to build on that. Those are fun. But learning about where the music came from, I didn't know that it started with hippies in the 60s and that it kind of was born out of rebellious church music. It makes perfect sense to me now, but I didn't know that going in. And so I thought that that was just a really intriguing element of this because it 
it gives a broad overview. And I, I think for me, that's what makes it a great documentary. If it just focused on one little piece of contemporary Christian music, let's say one decade, it wouldn't be giving the full picture. And while some might look at this and say, man, this could have gone so much deeper. There's so many more things you could cover. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to like do a series format, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love a sequel, but that talks about the music now, because that's one thing the film doesn't do is talk about the state of Christian music in the here and now. And there's lots that can be discussed about that, honestly, because it's in a very different place. But it hits the 60s and it talks about artists that I didn't know. And it talks about the 70s and the 80s and it hits highlights and it hits the defining moments in the genre and some of the artists that were trigger points for that. What that's really what more can you ask for? You can't cover every single artist in any genre of music that's ever done it, right? It's impossible. Or you can get really hyper specific and cover like a band or one specific artist. So I thought it really bridged that gap in, in an important and interesting way. I was compelled from the moment one, you know, eat like you, and probably I guess even more so because I knew more of the songs, you know, seeing these bands and these these singers hearing these songs and clips of them played. It was a nostalgic blast that was just so comforting to me because these things meant a ton when I was growing up. They were my comfort food. Uh, they were my comfort listens. And one thing I really appreciate about the documentary is that it doesn't gloss over the issues. You talked about this some. It hits on the fact that, look, Christian artists get divorced. And then they have to deal with the media on top of their own normal celebrity issue of being in being famous and having the public judge you. You're getting extra judged because you're a Christian. We learn about how some of these groups really struggled with fame in general and how that was tough on like DC Talk and how they had some, you know, depression around that. And it ultimately they end up there's one comment that really stood out to me about DC talk in particular, where they said at one point they were being held together with duct tape and prayer. And it makes sense. Like this is a hard thing. It also goes into and doesn't skirt away from the, the whiteness of the space. There's a really impactful segment of the documentary featuring Kirk Franklin specifically that talks about how hard it was for black artists to break in and that they're, you know, even within this broader idea of a Christian community and evangelicals, they had to deal with racism in their own, which is not surprising, right? In the least to us. And I thought it was fair. I thought that's what you need to do in a documentary. You're not trying to, to paint a fake picture of the music. It talks about going into the sixties and seventies, how they had to deal with being called devil music and, how that was a stigma that really, you know, car they carried with them. Some of the artists were drug addicts. They just loved Jesus and wanted to sing about him versus their drugs, you know, and some of the lyrics were too hard for certain conservatives and, you know, you can't please everybody. And I thought it just did a really good job of walking us through all of that. And so for me, that makes it a great documentary because someone like you who has a passing history and knowledge with some of these folks, you can maybe even get a little more out of it than the average Joe. But I think 
for someone that has no idea that Christian music even exists, this is a fantastic primer for, hey, here's a bunch of artists that are famous in this space. And here's the history and how it came about and how it evolved from the 60s to 70s to 80s to 90s and into the 2000s when it became less about big songs and it became about writing modern worship songs and such. So there's nothing I didn't like about it. I really don't have any negatives at all. The only potential, and I wouldn't call it a negative, is like I mentioned that it doesn't go into modern Christian music and the state of modern Christian music, which is under fire, especially in the worship space by a lot of uh, evangelicals. And, and I think that that was too much. I think that you really need another documentary to completely go in and evaluate that and explore the topic. And so it wouldn't have fit here. It would have made it way too long. And I, I thought that the pacing was great. It just goes on, you know, I never lost interest one bit. But again, I am coming into it as someone with an intimate understanding and, and knowledge of practically all of these people that we are getting to know. So yeah, I, I loved it. It was it was special to me and it and it will be special to me because it is covering a topic that has not ever had this sort of documentary historical treatment before. And so I find it very important for that reason. Was there anything that stood out to you as like maybe that could have been done better or that you didn't particularly like? At the end of the day, it's a it's a by the numbers documentary. You know, they they have one person who comes up to talk about their experiences, and then there's the next person who comes up to talk about their experiences. So it is very basic, which nothing wrong. I mean, basic sometimes gets the job done. It's just not very, I say, flexible when it comes to the format of the way it's presented. But the message is really the most important thing that this film really gives out, no matter how much of the, no matter what kind of format is really delivered through. And that's about it. I don't really have any other more negatives to say about this film i think it's i think if you are the audience for this film you're going to love this film there's no doubt about it awesome so this will be in theaters as well on october the first no streaming options yet so to speak we don't have anything on the calendar so what do you think is it worth a theater viewing for folks should they wait for it and watch it at home or just skip it very tough one because there are certain scenes where they will have concerts of people performing and I can see people together in a film enjoying the music together and being able to be in worship if they choose to when those scenes come up. Outside of that, I can't recommend this to watch in a theater. I think it is going to have the same fine effect if you watch it right on your TV at home. I don't disagree. I think for people like me who grew up with it and really are going to be energized by this, that they should go see it and they should support it because you want to give your money to the things that you want to see more of. <laughs> so for that, I think that it's worth it. And I have recommended it to several friends that I think will benefit from seeing it in a theater. I think for the most part, it plays just fine at home and waiting on it, you're not going to miss out on an experience you know that's unique i don't think the theater gives this anything special per se and so it's not a big deal if you want to wait but it's awesome if you want to support it if you already you know are into this idea and know that you're going to love it then why not go ahead and go see it now okay last but not least this is one that sadly Coles was unable to get a chance to see because we got hit with the 
nasty noontime press screening. Although, as awful as that is for some of our critics who can't get off of work in the middle of a workday, it was cool that even as Seattle, we usually get leftovers when it comes to screenings, but we got the normal. So the reason it was at noon is because the world premiere of No Time to Die was happening in London as we were watching it too. So we all got to see this movie. All the critics saw this movie for the first time together equally in their own time zones, which was really neat. And then the embargo came out like an hour later. So we everybody was able to kind of talk about it at once. So yes, No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig Bond film we have been waiting for for a very long time, starring Daniel Craig, Leia Sedu, I terrible, terrible at this French name, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris again, Jeffrey Wright, Christoph Waltz, Rory Kinnear, Ralph Fiennes, Rami Malek, Lashana Lynch, Anna de Armas, Dali Ben Salah, Billy Magnuson, and David Denick. Directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga and written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, Fukunaga, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It is based on the character of James Bond, made famous by Ian Fleming. What's it about? Five years after the capture of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, James Bond has left active service. He is approached by his friend and CIA officer Felix Leiter, who enlists his help in the search for Valdo Abruchev, a missing scientist. When it becomes apparent that Obrushev has been abducted, Bond must confront a villain whose schemes could see the death of millions. Okay, so I really, really liked the movie. It is two hours and 45 minutes long, and I did not personally feel the length. I thought that the pacing was good. I thought that the emotional structure of the film had its hooks in me and kept me engaged all the way throughout, even with only sporadic action scenes. The film has a really good opening action scene, I thought. Uh, you know, they all do. They all they always start with something that's a pretty pretty good banger. You know, it's not Day of the Dead awesome, but it is a really interesting one in my opinion. Has some good vehicle car chase sequences in this film the rest of the stuff in the action department not super memorable i would say maybe a little left left wanting in that area there is one particular scene that is really badass and features anna de Armas. unfortunately Kalesh, she's only in this movie for like 10 or 15 minutes and it is probably the best 10 or 15 minutes of the movie she is phenomenal she steals the movie in a way if if it didn't end the way it does story-wise for bond like over the you know wrapping up his story in such a great way over this five movie structure she would definitely have been the sole like you know scene stealing highlight of the movie she's great she brings comedy she brings sexy she brings badass and it's all wrapped up in this perfect little like role for her made me want to spin off like nothing else like i would love to see more of this character unfortunately it was so good and it happens kind of towards the beginning of the movie that most of us were waiting the rest of the movie for her to show back up <laughs> we're like when's she coming back like 
she was awesome. Like she surely is going to come back. Right. And she doesn't. And that was kind of a letdown. But overall, I think this is great. Primarily not because this is the best Bond movie. I think individually film wise that there are some things that could have been done a lot better. And I'm just merging all my likes and dislikes since I'm the only one talking. But the villain himself, Rami Malek, there's a lot that could have been done with this. And it just isn't written in a way that is super satisfying. I feel like Bond villains have this problem. We've had some amazing actors in this series. Javier Bardem, Christoph Waltz. We had Mads Mikkelsen. Like there are so many amazing actors playing these villains and they always seem to just not quite get the writing right. There's something missing here too for Rami Malek. Like you have him, use him. Don't turn him into a sullen, non-emotional character that just has a messed up looking face. Like give him something to offer. And his story is fairly bare bones and it's not the biggest part of the movie that is interesting. So it's the part of the movie that is driving the singular plot but the overarching story is what is captivating. If you are into Daniel Craig as a Bond actor, and he's my favorite, this solidified him as the best, in my opinion. It solidified this five-movie run as the best individual story. And that's because it's an arc. It has a start. It has multiple things that happen to Bond all throughout the way. And it has an end. And that is something we just have never been able to really say about the Bond character before. We've seen it within a single movie, but we haven't seen it over the course of several films like we did here. So it's got what I wanted. I left very satisfied because of the bigger picture. And I, I've seen other critics who have struggled with this movie because they saw it as a single movie that wasn't as good as other single Bond films. And I can't can't argue with that. But for me, it was great because of the whole. So I think people are going to enjoy it. I think people are going to like it. I will tell you this. It's got Linus Sangren doing the cinematography. And it's right there with Deacon's cinematography that we've had in the series before. It is an absolutely gorgeous and stunning picture. It was one of those movies where I just wanted to pause it constantly and like take a screenshot. It's like, that is amazing framing. Wow, look at that lighting. Look at those angles. Holy cow. Like, all the time, it just was so, so gorgeous to look at. And that helps when you've got, you know, a two-hour and 45-minute movie. Side character relationships, they're all good. Lashana Lynch, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention her. You know, much has been made about the way that she is taking on this mantle of 007. I thought that the way that the film handles that is really, really good. I appreciated it. It made for a ton of great dialogue and some really interesting questions about what is important in the number. Does it have a meaning? And what what is that meaning? Lashana herself, super strong. I think she showed that she could be in a spy series like this and carry it just fine. Could have given her a little more to do, kind of peters out with her character towards the end and doesn't fulfill the promise that she offered, but 
she shows that she is there and she belongs and she holds her own with Daniel Craig in quite a few scenes throughout the film. I loved her as well. Some of the other side characters, they, they old friends, new friends. This is a wrap up movie. What are you going to do? You had to tie up a bunch of bows, right? And so you're going to have people come in and come out and they just don't all stay for as long as maybe you wish. I could have kept watching this for another 45 minutes and I'd have loved it. I'd have been fine with it. Um, but I do understand that some people, they don't want this much emotion in the Bond story. This is an emotional Bond story. I cannot tell you more than that. I can't tell you why. But it's got so much heart and the character truly is struggling with this idea of time and moving on and whether or not that's ever going to be possible for him to do. And I latched on to that as a guy who loves feelings and I thought it was really great. So my recommendation, of course, is you've got to see this in a the theater. There's no question about it. If you happen to be listening to us from the UK, this will be in the theaters on September the 30th because you're lucky and you get it early because he's your guy. Bond is your guy. But for the rest of us, October the 8th in the US, buy your tickets now. Go see it in IMAX. It's absolutely, like I said, beautiful, stunning, gorgeous. You want to see it on the biggest, most perfect screen you can find. Um, and I think you're going to love it, Kalesa. And I can't wait for you to get a chance to see it uh, so I can find out what you think after that happens. Well, that's it for us tonight on FF+. Plus. We hope that you have found something that piques your interest. And as always, we'd love to hear from you on social media if you do. When you see any of the films that we discuss, you can hit us up on Twitter at Feelin' Film or at Black Nerd Magic, and you can join the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group. We would love to have you there and talk movies with you each and every day. We will be back soon. Until next time, keep feeling film. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.